Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and Part 2 of Robert Barr's The Mystery of the 500 Diamonds. We open Part 2 as Eugene Valmont is questioning one of his detectives out on the streets, trying to determine the path of escape that the American is taking. And now, our story. Did he look behind, or appear to know that he was being followed? No, sir. And your fare? He ran after the first man, and also went aboard the steam launch, which instantly started down the river. And that was the last you saw of them? Yes, sir. At what time did you reach the Pont de Nulli? I do not know, sir. I was compelled to drive rather fast, but the distance is seven to eight kilometers. You would do it under the hour? Oh, but certainly, under the hour. Then you must have reached Newley Bridge about four o'clock. Yes, that's very likely, sir. The plan of the tall American was now perfectly clear to me, and it comprised of nothing that was contrary to law. He had evidently placed his luggage on board the steam launch in the morning. The handbag had contained various materials which would enable him to disguise himself, and this bag he'd probably left in some shop down a side street, or else someone was waiting with it for him. The giving of the treasure to another man was not so risky as it had at first appeared, because he instantly followed that man, who was probably his confidential servant. Despite the windings of the river, there was ample time for the launch to reach Havre before the American steamer sailed on Saturday morning. I surmised it was his intention to come alongside the steamer before she left her berth in Havre Harbor, and thus transfer himself and his belongings unperceived by anyone on watch at the land side of the liner. All this, of course, was perfectly justifiable, and seemed, in truth, merely a well-laid scheme for escaping observation. His only danger of being tracked was when he got into the cab. Once away from the neighborhood of the Boulevard des Italiens, he was reasonably sure to evade pursuit, and the five minutes which his friend with the pistols had won for him afforded just the time he needed to get so far as the Place Madeleine, and after that everything was easy. Yet, if it had not been for those five minutes secured by coercion, I should not have found the slightest excuse for arresting him. But he was an accessory after the act in that piece of illegality. In fact, it was absolutely certain that he had been accessory before the fact, and guilty of conspiracy, with the man who had presented firearms to the auctioneer's audience, and who had interfered with an officer in the discharge of his duty by threatening me and my men. So I was now legally in the right if I arrested every person on board that steam launch. With a map of the river before me, I proceeded to make some calculations. It was now nearly ten o'clock at night. The launch had had six hours in which to travel at its utmost speed. It was doubtful if so small a vessel could make ten miles an hour, even with the current in its favor, which is rather sluggish because of the locks and the level country. Sixty miles would place her beyond Milan which is 58 miles from the Pont Royal, and, of course, a lesser distance from the Pont de Nulli. But the navigation of the river is difficult at all times, and almost impossible after dark. There were chances of the boat running aground, and then there was the inevitable delay at the locks. So I estimated that the launch would not yet have reached Milan, which was less than 25 miles from Paris by rail. Looking up the timetable, I saw then there were still two trains to Milan, the next at 10.25, which reached there at 11.40. I therefore had time to reach St. Lazare Station, 
and to accomplish some telegraphing before the train left. With three of my assistants, I got into a cab and drove to the station. On arrival, I sent one of my men to hold the train while I went into the telegraph office, cleared the wires, and got into communication with the lockmaster at Milan. He replied that no steam launch had passed down since an hour before sunset. I then instructed him to allow the yacht to enter the lock, close the upper gate, let half of the water out, and hold the vessel there until I came. I also ordered the local Milan police to send enough men to the lock to enforce this command. Lastly, I sent messages all along the river, asking the police to report to me on the train and the passage of the steam launch. The 1025 is a slow train, stopping at every station. However, every drawback has its compensation, and these stoppages enabled me to receive and send telegraphic messages. I was quite well aware that I might be on a fool's errand in going to Milan. The yacht could have put about before it had steamed a mile, and so returned back to Paris. There had been no time to learn whether this was so or not if I was to catch the 1025. Also, it might have landed its passengers anywhere along the river. I may say at once that neither of these two things happened, and my calculations regarding her movements were accurate to the letter. But a trap most carefully set may be prematurely sprung by inadvertence, or more often by the overzeal of some stupid ass who fails to understand his instructions, or oversteps them if they are understood. I received a most annoying telegram from Denouval, a lock about thirteen miles above that of Milan. The local policeman, arriving at the lock, found that the yacht had just cleared. The fool shouted to the captain to return, threatening him with all the pains and penalties of the law if he refused. The captain did refuse, rung on full speed ahead, and disappeared in the darkness. Through this well-meant blunder of an understrapper, those on board the launch had received warning that we were on their track. I telegraphed to the lockkeeper at Denival to allow no craft to pass toward Paris until further orders. We thus held the launch in a 13-mile stretch of water, but the night was pitch dark, and passengers might be landed on either bank with all France before them, over which to effect their escape in any direction. We'll return with the mystery of the 500 diamonds by Robert Barr right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. It was midnight when I reached the lock at Milan, and, as was to be expected, nothing had been seen or heard of the launch. It gave me some satisfaction to telegraph to that dunderhead at Denival to walk along the river bank to Milan and report if he'd learnt the launch's whereabouts. We took up our quarters in the lodgekeeper's house and waited. There was little sense in sending men to scour the country at this time of night, for the pursued were on the alert, and very unlikely to allow themselves to be caught if they had gone ashore. On the other hand, there was every chance that the captain would refuse to let them land, because he must know his vessel was in a trap from which it could not escape, and although the demand of the policeman at Denival was quite unauthorized, nevertheless the captain could not know that. Well, he must be well aware of his danger in refusing to obey a command from the authorities. Even if he got away for a moment, he must know that arrest was certain, and that his punishment would be severe. His only plea could be that he had not heard and understood the order to return. But this plea would be invalidated if he aided in the escape of two men, whom he must know were wanted by the police. I was, therefore, 
very confident that if his passengers asked to be set ashore, the captain would refuse when he had had time to think about his own danger. My estimate proved accurate, for towards one o'clock the lockkeeper came in and said that the green and red lights of an approaching craft were visible, and as he spoke, the yacht whistled for the opening of the lock. I stood by the lockkeeper while he opened the gates. My men and the local police were concealed on each side of the lock. The launch came slowly in, and as soon as it had done so, I asked the captain to step ashore, which he did. I wish a word with you, I said. Follow me. I took him into the lockkeeper's house and closed the door. Where are you going? To Havre. Where did you come from? Paris. From what quay? From the Pont de Neuilly. When did you leave there? At five minutes to four o'clock this afternoon. Yesterday afternoon, you mean? Yes, yesterday afternoon. Who engaged you to make this voyage? An American. I do not know his name. He paid you well, I suppose? He paid me what I asked. Have you received the money? Yes, sir. I may inform you, Captain, that I am Eugene Valmont, chief detective of the French government, and that all the police of France at this moment are under my control. I ask you, therefore, to be careful of your answers. You were ordered by a policeman at Denoval to return. Why did you not do it? The lockkeeper ordered me to return, but as he had no right to order me, I went on. You knew very well it was the police who ordered you, and you ignored the command. Again, I ask you why you did so. I did not know it was the police. I thought you would say that. You knew very well, but were paid to take the risk, and it is likely to cost you dear. You had two passengers aboard? Yes, sir. Did you put them ashore between here and Denival? No, sir, but one of them went overboard, and we couldn't find him again. Which one? The short man. Then the American is still aboard? What American, sir? Captain, you must not trifle with me. The man who engaged you is still aboard. Oh, no, sir, he has never been aboard. Do you mean to tell me that the second man who came on your launch at the Pont de Neuilly is not the American who engaged you? No, sir. The American was a smooth-faced man. This man wore a black beard. Yes, a false beard. I did not know that, sir. I understood from the American that I was to take but one passenger. One came aboard with a small box in his hand, the other with a small bag. Each declared himself to be the passenger in question. I did not know what to do, so I left Paris with both of them on board. Then the tall man with the black beard is still with you. Yes, sir. Well, Captain, is there anything else you have to tell me? I think you will find it better in the end to make a clean breast of it. The Captain hesitated, turning his cap about in his hands for a few moments, and then he said, I am not sure that the first passenger went overboard of his own accord when the police hailed us at Denival. Ah, you knew it was the police then. I was afraid after I left it might have been. You see, when the bargain was made with me, the American said that if I reached Halbra at a certain time, a thousand francs extra would be paid to me. So I was anxious to get along as quickly as I could. 
I told him it was dangerous to navigate the Seine at night. But he paid me well for attempting it. After the policeman called to us at Denival, the man with the small box became very much excited and asked me to put him ashore, which I refused to do. The tall man appeared to be watching him, never letting him get far away. When I heard the splash in the water, I ran aft, and I saw the tall man put in the box which the other had held into his handbag, although I said nothing of it at the time. We cruised back and forward about the spot where the other man had gone overboard, but saw nothing more of him. Then I came on to Milan, intending to give information about what I had seen. That's all I know of the matter, sir. Who is the man who had the jewels? A Frenchman? What jewels, sir? The man with the small box. Yes, sir, he was French. You have hinted that the foreigner threw him overboard. What grounds have you for such a belief if you did not see the struggle? The night is very dark, sir and I did not see what happened. I was at the wheel in the forward part of the launch, with my back turned towards these two. I heard a scream, then a splash. If the man had jumped overboard as the other said he did, he wouldn't have screamed. Besides, as I told you, when I ran off, I saw the foreigner put the little box in his handbag, which he shut up quickly, as if he did not wish me to notice. Very good, Captain. If you have told the truth, it will go easier with you in the investigation that will follow. I now turned the captain over to one of my men and ordered in the foreigner with his bag and bogus black whiskers. Before questioning him, I ordered him to open the handbag, which he did with evident reluctance. It was filled with false whiskers, fake mustaches, and various bottles, but on top of them all lay the jewel case. I raised the lid and displayed that accursed necklace. I looked up at the man who stood there calmly enough, saying nothing in spite of the overwhelming evidence against him. "'Will you oblige me by removing your false beard?' He did so at once, throwing it into the open bag. I knew the moment I saw him that he was not the American, and thus my theory had broken down, in one very important part at least. Informing him who I was, and cautioning him to speak the truth, I asked how he came in possession of the jewels.' "'Am I under arrest?' he asked. "'But certainly,' I replied. "'Of what am I accused?' "'You are accused, in the first place, "'of being in possession of property which does not belong to you.' "'I plead guilty to that. "'What in the second place?' "'In the second place you may find yourself accused of murder. "'I am innocent of the second charge. "'The man jumped overboard. "'If that is true,' Why did he scream as he went over? Because, too late to recover his balance, I seized this box and held it. He was in rightful possession of the box. The owner gave it to him. I admit that. I saw the owner give it to him. Then why should he jump overboard? I do not know. He seemed to become panic-stricken when the police at the last lock ordered us to return. He implored the captain to put him ashore and from that moment I watched him keenly, expecting that if we drew near to the land he would attempt to escape, as the captain had refused to beach the launch. He remained quiet for about half an hour, seated on a camp chair by the rail, with his eyes turned toward the shore, trying, as I imagined, to penetrate the darkness and estimate the distance. Then suddenly he sprang up and made his dash. I was prepared for this, 
and instantly caught the box from his hand. He gave a half-turn, trying either to save himself or to retain the box, and then with a scream went down shoulders first into the water. It all happened within a second after he leaped from his chair. You admit yourself, then, indirectly responsible for his drowning, at least. I see no reason to suppose that the man was drowned. If able to swim, he could easily have reached the river bank. If unable to swim, why should he attempt it, encumbered by the box? You believe he escaped, then? I think so, yes. It will be lucky for you should that prove to be the case. Certainly. How did you come to be in the yacht at all? I shall give you a full amount of the affair, concealing nothing. I am a private detective with an office in London. I was certain that some attempt would be made, probably by the most expert criminals at large, to rob the possessor of this necklace. I came over to Paris, anticipating trouble, determined to keep an eye upon the jewel case if this proved possible. If the jewels were stolen, the crime was bound to be one of the most celebrated in legal annals. I was present during the sale, and saw the buyer of the necklace. I followed the official who went to the bank, and thus learned that the money was behind the check. I then stepped outside, and waited for the buyer to appear. He held the case in his hand. "'In his pocket, you mean?' I interrupted. "'He had it in his hand when I saw him. "'Then the man who afterwards jumped overboard approached him, "'took the case without a word.' held up his hand for a cab, and when an open vehicle approached the curb, he stepped in, saying, The Madeline. I hailed a closed cab, instructed the cabman to follow the first, as near like those the man in front wore as I had in my collection. Why did you do that? As a detective, you should know why I did it. I wished as nearly as possible to resemble the man in front, so that if necessity arose, I could pretend that I was the person commissioned to carry the jewel case. As a matter of fact, the crisis arose when we came to the end of our cab journey. The captain did not know which was the true passenger, and so let us both remain aboard the launch. And now you have the whole story. An extremely improbable one, sir. Even by your own account, you had no right to interfere in this business at all. I quite agree with you there, he replied, with great nonchalance, taking a card from his pocketbook which he handed to me. That is my London address. You may make inquiries, and you will find I am exactly what I represent myself to be. The first train for Paris left Milan at eleven minutes past four in the morning. It was now a quarter after two. I left the captain, crew, and launch in charge of two of my men, with orders to proceed to Paris as soon as it was daylight. I, supported by the third man, waited at the station with our English prisoner, and reached Paris at half-past five in the morning. The English prisoner, though severely interrogated by the judge, stood by his story. Inquiry by the police in London proved that what he said of himself was true. His case, however, began to look very serious when two of the men from the launch asserted that they had seen him push the Frenchman overboard, and their statement could not be shaken. All our energies were bent for the next two weeks in trying to find something of the identity of the missing man, or to get any trace of the two Americans. If the tall American were alive, it seemed incredible that he should not have made application for the valuable property he had lost. All attempts to trace him by means of his check on the Credit Lyonnais proved futile. 
The bank pretended to give me every assistance, but I sometimes doubt if it actually did so. It had evidently been well paid for its services, and evinced no impetuous desire to betray so good a customer. We made inquiries about every missing man in Paris, but also without result. The case had excited much attention throughout the world, and doubtless was published in full in the American papers. The Englishman had been in custody three weeks when the chief of police in Paris received the following letter. Dear Sir, On my arrival in New York by the English steamer Lucania, I was much amused to read in the papers accounts of the exploits of detectives, French and English. I am sorry that only one of them seems to be in prison. I think his French confrere ought to be there also. I regret exceedingly, however, that there is the murmur of the death by drowning of my friend Martin Dubois of 375 Rue Aux Rouen. If this is indeed the case, he has met his death through the blunders of the police. Nevertheless, I wish you would communicate with his family at the address I have given, and assure them that I will make arrangements for their future support. I beg to inform you that I am a manufacturer of imitation diamonds, and through extensive advertising succeeded in accumulating a fortune of many millions. I was in Europe when the necklace was found, and had in my possession over a thousand imitation diamonds of my own manufacture. It occurred to me that here was the opportunity of the most magnificent advertisement in the world. I saw the necklace, received its measurements, and also obtained photographs of it taken by the French government. Then I set my expert friend Martin Dubois at work, and, with the artificial stones I gave him, he made an imitation necklace so closely resembling the original that you apparently do not know it is the unreal you have in your possession. I did not fear the villainy of the crooks as much as the blundering of the police, who would have protected me with brass band vehemence if I could not elude them. I knew that the detectives would overlook the obvious, but would at once follow a clue if I provided one for them. Consequently, I laid my plans, just as you have discovered, and got Martin Dubois up from Rouen to carry the case I gave him down to Havre. I had had another box prepared and wrapped in brown paper, with my address in New York written thereon. The moment I emerged from the auction room, while my friend the cowboy was holding up the audience, I turned my face to the door, took out the genuine diamonds from the case, and slipped it into the box I had prepared for mailing. Into the genuine case I put the bogus diamonds. After handing the box to Dubois, I turned down a side street, and then into another whose name I do not know, and there in a shop with sealing wax and string, did up the real diamonds for posting. I labeled the package books, went to the nearest post office, paid letter postage, and handed it over unregistered as if it were of no particular value. After this I went to my room in the Grand Hotel, where I had been staying under my own name for more than a month. Next morning I took train for London, and the day after sailed from Liverpool on the Lucania. I arrived before the Gascon, which sailed from Havre on Saturday, met my box at the customs house, paid duty, and it now reposes in my safe. I intend to construct an imitation necklace which will be so like the genuine one that nobody can tell the two apart. Then I shall come to Europe and exhibit the pair, for the publication of the truth of this matter will give me the greatest advertisement that ever was. Yours truly, John Hazard. I at once communicated with Rouen and found Martin Dubois alive and well. His first words were, I swear I did not steal the jewels. 
he had swum ashore, tramped to Rouen, and kept quiet in great fear while I was fruitlessly searching Paris for him. It took Mr. Hazard longer to make his imitation necklace than he supposed, and several years later he booked his passage with the two necklaces on the ill-fated steamer Burgoyne, and now rests beside them at the bottom of the Atlantic. Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark, unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Thanks for joining us for Robert Barr's The Mystery of the 500 Diamonds. Hope you enjoyed the mystery and the story. If you did, stop a moment and send us a kind review. We always appreciate good reviews. Also, at the end of Part 1, I explained that Spotify users can now comment on specific episodes. Well, I've got a few examples for you. Starting with The Story of the Other Wise Man, Part 2 by Henry Van Dyke. From Gerard Whelan, 14 Days Ago, Beautiful Story. Same Story, Second Response. From MRM, 22 Days Ago, Pretty Good. On the Aluminum Dagger, from Carrie Chuck Hodgen. Great Story. Ah, this was The Magic Egg by Frank Stockton. From Sebastian Miller, 17 Days Ago, Really Good. Thumbs Up, Thanks. And, and from Penny C. Wright, a month ago, fantastic, love this. Frank Stockton does real well with our listeners, by the way. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Until next time, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.